Chapters 13 and 14 of Love's Bitterest Cup by E. D. E. N. Southworth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Chapter 13. A Quiet Wedding. At seven o'clock, they were all assembled in Mrs. Force's room, waiting for the summons to go down. They were all dressed with the simple elegance that became the occasion. Odalite wore a white silk-trained dress with a lace overdress, looped with lilies of the valley, and a lace veil fastened to her hair by a spray of the same delicate flower. She wore no jewelry. It was a whim of the bride to wear nothing on this occasion that she had worn on that of her first broken bridal. Not even the same sort of materials for her dress, or the same sort of flowers for ornaments. Her bridal was very plain and inexpensive but no flowers could have bloomed more beautifully than her cheeks and lips, and no diamonds shone more brilliantly than her eyes. The light of happiness irradiated her face and form, her whole presence and atmosphere. The nine bridesmaids were all dressed very nearly alike. Wynnette, Elva, and Rosemary had white tulle dresses trimmed with rose-colored ribbon. Sophie, Nanny, Polly, and Peggy Grandier wore white organdy dresses, trimmed with light blue ribbon, and Ernie and Millie Elk, white Swiss muslin suits trimmed with bright yellow ribbon. Mrs. Force wore a pale mauve damask silk. No one except the young bride wore any headdress but their own tastefully arranged hair. It was to be a quiet wedding, you know, a very quiet wedding, with none but the family friends. There came a rap at the door. Wynnette, who was nearest at hand, opened it. "'Tell your mother, my dear, that the Reverend Dr. Priestley has come,' said Mr. Force, who stood without. But Mrs. Force had heard the voice and answered for herself. "'We are ready and waiting. Come in.' He entered, smiling on the bevy of beauties that met his eyes. He singled out his daughter, kissed her on the forehead, and drew her arm in his to take her downstairs, mentally applying to her the pretty line of Tennyson. "'Queen Rose of the Rosebud Garden of Girls.' He led her down, and the others followed in pairs. He led her into the parlor, where stood the portly form of the Reverend Dr. Priestley, in full canonicals, and surrounded by a small group of four young men, to wit, Leonidas Force, the bridegroom, Roland Bayard, his best man, and Messrs. Ned and Sam Grandier, nothing in particular. The bridegroom advanced, bowed and received the bride from her father's hand, and led her up before the minister, who now stood under the floral arch between the front and rear drawing-rooms, and from which the floral wedding-bell hung. The bridegroom and the bride stood before the minister. Roland Bayard, best man, stood on his right. Wynnette, first bridemaid, stood on her left. Behind them, the eight white-robed girls formed a semicircle. Mr. Force stood on their right, with Mrs. Force on his arm. She was pale and trembling. He perceived her state, and whispered, I suppose every mother suffers something in seeing her daughter married, even under the most auspicious circumstances. But look at Odalite and Lee. See how happy those children are, and recover your spirits. She glanced up in her husband's kind face and smiled. The doorbell rang sharply. Perhaps it was the utter stillness of the house, and the solemn pause of expectancy as the minister opened his book, which made that sound reverberate through the air, like a sudden and peremptory summons. Mrs. Force looked up anxiously. It is of no consequence, my dear, some chance caller who does not know what is going on here. But I prepared for such an event by giving orders to the hall boy not to admit anyone. 
"'but to tell all and sundry who might come that we are engaged,' whispered Mr. Force. "'Hush,' she murmured. But she looked relieved. "'Hush, Dr. Priestley is about to begin.' The minister, in fact, began, in a very impressive manner, to read the opening exhortation, and every eye was fixed on him, and every ear bent to hear him. There was some movement in the hall outside. Mrs. Force started and turned her head. Her husband stooped and murmured low, "'Don't tremble so, my dear. It is only the servants pressing close to the door to steal a look at the wedding. They would not let any visitors in, and even if they should make such a mistake, it would be no great matter.' "'Hush,' she answered, in the lowest murmur. "'Do not talk. Attend to the ceremony.' Uninterrupted by the inaudible whisper between husband and wife, the ceremony was proceeding. And no one moved or spoke until the minister, lifting his eyes from the book in his hands, inquired gravely, "'Who giveth this woman to be married to this man?' "'I do,' answered Abel Force, stepping forward, taking his daughter's hand with tender solemnity, and placing it in that of Leonidas, who bowed with deep reverence as he received it. Then Abel Force retreated to the side of his pale and agitated wife, whispered with a smile, "'Just what your father did for me, my love. Just what Leonidas may have to do for Odalite's daughters, some twenty years hence.' THE ORDER OF NATURE, DEAR WIFE, AND WE MUST SMILE AND NOT CRY OVER IT. BUT ELFRIDA FORCE WAS NOT GRIEVING OVER THE MARRIAGE OF HER DAUGHTER. THERE WAS NOTHING IN THAT MARRIAGE TO GIVE HER PAIN, EVERYTHING TO GIVE HER SATISFACTION. Odalite WAS MARRYING NO STRANGER, BUT LEONIDAS, WHO HAD BEEN BROUGHT UP IN HER HOME, WHO LOVED HER, AND WAS BELOVED BY HER AS AN ONLY SON. AND Odalite WAS NOT TO BE TAKEN AWAY FROM HER, BUT WAS TO LIVE ON THE ADJOINING PLANTATION TO THEIR OWN, where, if they pleased, mother and daughter might meet every day. Altogether, a most perfectly satisfactory marriage, in which her soul would have delighted but for a nameless dread of approaching evil, a dread which she could neither comprehend nor conquer, a dread of impending ill which was fast growing into terror of an immediate death-blow. Oh, she breathed, when it is entirely over, finished, done, and sealed, and they are off at sea, then, and then only, shall I be able to breathe freely. Meanwhile, the solemn rites went on to the conclusion, and once more Odalite, with her hand safely clasped in that of her bridegroom, heard spoken over them the awful warning, Those whom God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. There was a pause, but no interruption on this occasion. A short pause, and then the solemn, pathetic, beautiful benediction was pronounced upon the newly married and indeed happy pair. And then Leonidas took his bride by her hand to give her the sacred sealing kiss, when, before his lips could meet hers, he was suddenly seized from behind and violently hurled to the other end of the room. CHAPTER fourteen: A MEAN RETALIATION Revenge is now my joy, she's not for me, and I'll make sure she ne'er shall be for thee. Dryden the intruder was Colonel Angus Anglesia, who caught Odalite to his breast, and with his arm firmly clasping her waist, stood, haughty, insolent, and defiant, in the midst of the thunderstruck group. A scene of indescribable confusion followed. The bride fainted. The bridesmaids shrieked. The old minister dropped his book and fell back in the nearest chair, in a state boarding on apoplexy. The men, panic-stricken by amazement for a moment, now pressed forward. Anglesia glared at them. "'This woman is my wife,' he said. 
Lee instantly recovered himself and dashed madly forward. Heaven only knows what he might have done, but he was intercepted and held as in a vice by Mr. Force, who sternly said, Lee, there must be no violence here. This madman must be dealt with by law, not by violence. This madman, shouted the infuriated youth, struggling desperately to free himself. This madman, is it? This scoundrel, steeped to the lips in vice and crime. This... Lee, be quiet. Would you murder or be murdered? demanded Mr. Force, holding the young maniac firmly. Then, turning to the intruder, he said, in a calm, commanding tone, "'Colonel Anglesia, leave the house.' "'When I have accomplished that for which I came here,' answered the intruder, smiling superior. Young Bayard made a dash at him. "'Roland!' exclaimed Mr. Force, in a peremptory tone that arrested the steps of the young man. "'Stop! I will have no struggle in my house. If the man does not leave quietly, he shall be taken off by a policeman.' But now all Abel Force's attention and energy were required to control the young lion whom he held. Let me get at him, the thief, who married a rich widow only to rob and desert her, the bigamist, who having a living wife, tried to deceive and marry a wealthy betrothed maiden, only to rob and ruin her, the forger, who invented and published a false account of his own death, that he might entrap his victim into another marriage, and take a mean revenge by coming here with pretended claims to stop it. "'Oh, but he shall die for this!' roared the youth, foaming with rage and struggling fiercely to free himself. "'Lee, Lee, be quiet, I say. You are stark, staring mad!' exclaimed Abel Force, holding the young man fast, though it took all his strength to do it. He might as well have talked to a cyclone. "'This felon!' thundered the youth. "'This felon who has broken every law of God and man!' This felon, I say, who should have been in the state prison twenty years ago, serving out a life term. And you see him with my wife in his arms, and you will not let me go. Oh! Here Mrs. Force, commanding herself by a great effort, went up to where Colonel Anglesia stood holding Odalite to his bosom, and clasped her hands, raised her eyes to him, and pleaded, Oh, for dear mercy's sake, give me my poor child. Don't you see that she is fainting, dying? Somewhat to her surprise, Anglesia placed Odalite in her arms, saying, lightly, "'So that you do not take her out of the room. You know that she is my wife, and—' "'Edward Grandier, be kind enough to step and bring in a policeman, two of them if possible,' said Mr. Force, who had all he could do to hold Leonidas. "'Uncle, uncle, I don't want to hurt you, but by my soul if you don't let me go, I shall be compelled to hurt you,' exclaimed the maddened and writhing youth." but the strong, mature man held him in arms that were like iron cable chains. "'I tell you, I shall hurt you, uncle.' "'Very well, Lee, hurt me, but I shall hold you all the same.' "'Why won't you let me kill him?' yelled Lee. "'Because, though he deserves death, you would commit a crime.' "'Oh, heaven, must I bear this?' "'Be patiently, let the law deal with this man. "'Edward Grandier, I ask you to go for a policeman.' "'Yes, sir. I only stopped to ask Roland where I should find one.' said the young countryman, apologetically as he hurried away. At this point Mrs. Force had led Odalite to an easy chair, where she recovered from her fainting fit, only to fall into a paroxysm of hysterical sobs and tears. Her heartbroken mother sat by her side. Her bridesmaids stood all around her, too much frightened to offer the least comfort or assistance. Colonel Anglesia approached this group. Odalite, who was sobbing convulsively, shuddered, and covered her eyes with her hands. 
the bridesmaids, who all knew him, for he had dined often at the tables of their parents, regarded him in fear and horror, and cast down their eyes to avoid looking at him. But Angus Anglesia ignored them all, passed them, and, addressing Mrs. Force, said almost apologetically, I did not wish or intend to make a scene, but it was more than even my self-possession could endure to see my wife in the arms of another man, who was about to kiss her. I only want my just and lawful rights. You, madame, know that your eldest daughter is my lawful wife. Knowing this, I would ask you why you permitted your daughter to commit a felony that exposes her to the penalty of the laws for such cases made and provided. We thought that Odalite was free to marry. We thought that you were dead, said Elfrida Force, who had suddenly grown superstitiously afraid of this man, who seemed to be a Satan in strength, subtlety, and unscrupulous wickedness. You thought I was dead? Upon what ground? I am in the prime of life and in the height of health. We saw the notice of your death in a paper sent to us. Really, well, that is rather startling. I should like to see that paper. At this moment, Dr. Priestley came up and said, This is all very terrible. I, I do not understand it in the least. It is easily explained, sir. A false report of my death reached my wife there. She, believing herself to be a widow, contracted marriage with that young gentleman yonder, who seems to be executing a war-dance in the arms of my father-in-law, replied Colonel Anglesia. Oh, Dr. Priestley, will you be so kind as to go and assist Mr. Force in bringing Leonidas to reason? pleaded the lady. Yes, of course. Oh, this is terrible, terrible. In the whole course of my ministry I never met anything so terrible. But, sir, he said, suddenly breaking off in his discourse and turning to Colonel Anglesia, you said that this young lady believed herself to be a widow when she contracted marriage with Mr. Force. But she was never known here as wife or widow. I have known her for more than three years as Miss Force. That certainly requires explanation, as our marriage was not a secret one, but was solemnized in the face of day and before a large congregation, and then knocked as high as the sky by the dropping down upon you of your Californian wife. Oh, you hoofed and horned devil, said Wynnette, suddenly joining the group, and unable longer to restrain herself. The Reverend Dr. Priestley stared. Oh, what am I saying? I mean, Reverend, sir, Wynnette began apologetically. I mean that this gentleman's attempted marriage with my elder sister was arrested at the very altar by the appearance of a lady from St. Sebastian, who claimed to be, and proved herself to be, his lawful wife. The old minister looked perplexed and helplessly from the earnest girl to the scornful man. After that, my sister went from the church to my father's house and lived under our parents' protection. Of course she was still Miss Force. The unfinished ceremony could not have changed her name or condition, even if the Californian had been an impostor, which she was not. This cowardly deadbeat and mean scala— Oh, I beg pardon, I am sure, Dr. Priestley. I should have said, Colonel Anglesia, here present, knows that she was not an impostor, and he knows that he has no claim on Odalite. He only comes here to make a scene. His marriage was broken off at the altar by the appearance of his wife, and he has determined that Odalite's shall be broken off, for the day at least, by the appearance of himself, with the claim that he is her husband. It is tit for tat, you know. What's good for the gander is good for the goose, you see. Oh, dear, excuse me. I mean it is his revenge, reprisal commending back of the poisoned chalice, don't you know? Madame, is this true? inquired the bewildered minister. 
Mrs. Force did not reply. She dared not. She was so utterly subdued by the appearance of her arch-enemy, under such inexplicable circumstances. She could only ignore his question and repeat her request. "'Oh, Dr. Priestley, you are a man of peace. Pray go and help my husband bring our young relative to reason.' The old minister unwillingly trotted off and arrived on the scene of action in good time. For Mr. Force's strength was beginning to give way under the struggles of his prisoner to escape without hurting his captor. "'You see that man standing among the ladies, whom his presence insults and contaminates, and you will not let me get at him,' cried Lee. "'My dear boy, I will not have a fight in my parlor and in the presence of women and children. Do you understand? Wait for the police. We will have him peaceably arrested and taken off.' then our interruption will be over. The marriage ceremony was concluded, you know. As soon as we get rid of this madman, for of course he is a madman, you can get ready and take the train for Baltimore, just as if nothing unpleasant had happened. Mr. Force spoke in a clear and ringing voice, and was heard by Colonel Anglesia, who laughed out aloud and derisively. At that moment Roland Bayard and Grandier came in, conveying two policemen, so rapidly had the events occurred which take so long to report, that ten minutes had not elapsed since the first appearance of Colonel Anglesia on the scene, nor three since the departure of the young men in search of the policeman. "'Ah, here you are!' exclaimed Abelforce, in a tone of relief. "'Yes, sir,' said Roland Bayard. "'We were so fortunate as to meet the two officers at the corner of the street.' "'And strangely enough, they were on their way to the house,' added Ned Grandier." Some of the servants must have had the discretion to go for them. "'Well, officers, I am glad that you are here, and I hope you will be able to do your unpleasant duty quietly,' said Mr. Force. And pointing directly to the intruder, he added, "'I give that man there, Angus Anglesia, in charge for a violent breach of the peace. Take him away at once.' The policeman stared at the speaker, and then at Colonel Anglesia, in a very unofficial sort of way, and finally walked up to the colonel, and one of them said, "'I don't understand it, sir. What does it mean?' "'He's drunk, I guess. But that need not hinder your duty. Go and serve the papers on him at once.' The policeman came back to Mr. Force and offered him a folded document. "'What is this? What nonsense is this?' inquired Mr. Force, without taking the paper, because both his hands were still engaged in holding Lee. "'Take it and read it, sir, if you please,' said the officer who had served it. "'It is addressed to yourself.' "'Roland,' said Mr. Force, addressing young Bayard, "'I don't want to get you into a fight with your brother-in-arms "'by asking you to hold Lee, "'but will you please open that paper "'and hold it up before my eyes that I may read it?' "'Roland bowed in silence, took the paper, "'opened it and stared at it for a moment, "'before he held it up to his host to be read.'" End of chapter 14